Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. If you're physically able, will you stand with me right now um, in uh, reverence with uh, in respect out of God's Word? It's God's instruction to Moses. <clears throat> we talked about time and again that when Moses received the law, and we uh, emphasize that a lot, but when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he not only got the law from God, but he also got specific instructions regarding the tabernacle. The law reveals that God's just. The tabernacle reveals He's a Savior. Amen? That's the gospel. God's a just God, but He's also a Savior. And so, uh, let's look at His instructions in regard to the altar of incense. God told Moses, You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its width. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay its top its sides all around and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the, under the moldings on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides and they shall be they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. And when he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it. A perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Thank you for standing. You may be seated, please. Thank you so very much. The Bible says in Romans 5.10, and we talked about this last week, that God offered up his son for um, that we're saved by we're um, our sins are forgiven and atoned for by his death, but we're saved by Christ's life, and that uh, sometimes we look at the, the the beauty of our salvation and we focus so much on so much so on the fact that he died for us that we do that to the neglect and we should focus on it, but we do that to the neglect of the fact that God raised up His Son to live for us, that we're eternal because Jesus is eternal. He didn't give us eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. Being knit together with Him, being born of the Spirit of the living God, is eternal life. Eternal life is not a time frame. It's a condition. Eternal life is being rightly related to God through His Son. It's a position. It's, a, it's an identity. Uh, it is being knit to Christ, literally, born of the loins of Jesus, and being in Him. And so now that we're rightly related to Him, and we look at the tabernacle, and we see how the tabernacle shows us how the dynamics of the Christian life works. Time and again we've talked about that when you walk into the tabernacle, and we look into the tabernacle proper, and we uh, look at, uh, um, at the, uh, as we walk in into the tabernacle, can you give me right there? Get another color? Um, let me try to get another mic. Is there another one right around here somewhere? Underneath the TV. Okay. Thank you, Elaine. Uh -huh. 
Got it? Is that it? We look. We walk. Thank you, Spencer. Okay, we walk into the tabernacle, and we're walking into the gate here, which faces the east. We talked about the course that Jesus is the way. The word shepherd means door. You come in by any other door, you're a thief or a criminal. You can only come in through Christ. And then we come to the brazen altar that we talked about, and that's a brazen altar is a picture of the cross, and how that the sacrifices were bled there and burnt at that offering place. And then we moved on in to the bronze laver, which is here, that just before the most of the holy place. And the laver is a picture of the washing that needs to take place in the believer by the word of God and the confession of sin in order to move into a fellowship with Him. Uh, we have a relationship with Him. We talked about this time and again. There's so much confusion in the body of Christ and contrasting the difference between our relationship and our fellowship. That we have a relationship as a believer that's eternal. Those who repented toward God and put their faith in His Son have an internal relationship with God through that union. But unconfessed and unrepentant sin in the life of a believer messes up and harms our fellowship. And that labor, that labor is all about fellowship. And when we wash there and we confess our sins, then we can move into the deep, intimate fellowship that's, that's typified, that's symbolic of the, most, the, the holy place. And we move into the holy place and we look at the table of the showbread of the presence of God that's here on this right side. I know it's difficult to see. And then we looked at the... And that's a picture of the body of Jesus Christ and the communion we have because His body was broken on our behalf. And then we moved <coughs> to the other side, excuse me, and looked at the <coughs> the lampstand, the golden lampstand, which is, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. That the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify of the Son. And so we recognize and know Jesus because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the dwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And then we move here, and thank you, Spencer, for this one. We move on in now to where we are now. We introduced last week the, uh, the uh, golden altar. And we talked about again that the golden altar is wood overlaid with gold. Now, remember what the wood is symbolic of. It's, it's symbolic of Jesus' humanity. That Jesus did come and take on human flesh. God became a man. He didn't cease to become God. That's not possible. But he did take on human flesh. And so the wood represents his humanity. And the gold represents his divinity. That he's deity. And he has the right and the access to the Father, to the throne. And this golden altar is symbolic of the intercessory prayer relationship that we have with our Savior. And the Bible says in Hebrews 7.25, we talked about last week, that Jesus ever lives. That he's at the Father's right hand and he ever lives to make intercession for us. I wish Miss Madge were here this morning. Miss um, Madge is 90 years old, a member of our fellowship. And Miss Madge has uh, went with us to Kenya uh, summer before last. We made a mission trip to Kenya, and uh, at the age of 89, Miss Madge went with us. And how you remember us walking up and down those uh, streets in Kenya? It's a very difficult trip just to get there in the first place. It takes two or three days of strong, hard travel to get there. And all the people in the church and our sister church in Kenya were just so thrilled that Miss Madge would come at such a at that season of her life and make such a difficult trip to tell them about her Savior. But time and again, time and again, Miss Madge would come up to me in a service, usually almost every Sunday morning, with her eyes watering, and say, Brother Lindsay, I want you to know I'm just so thankful to be a part of this fellowship. And there's not much I can do, but I want you to know that I pray for you. 
Hear me out. Hear me out. It's the most powerful, most effective, most gracious thing that she could do for us. And I told her last week, I said I was going to share this last week when she was here. And I'll tell her this, God willing, to her face. And I have told her. But I really want it to sink in. That's what Jesus ever lives to do for the saints. You know, and we're spent. We're doing so much of God's work in our own strength rather than tapping into His because of the prayerlessness of our lives. And when somebody tells you that they're praying for you, i got, I got to tell you, that's the most incredible blessing. That's the most gracious thing, the most powerful thing that anybody could ever say to you. And really mean it. I'm praying for you. That's a big deal. I want you to know something. As a matter of fact, we've got a missionary, former missionary family amongst And I was talking to Brian this morning, and I think they were missionaries in Kenya. I mean, uh, Haiti a couple of years ago. We've talked about it time and again. If you're ever around a missionary, and they come and they share, and if they have a platform in our church, and we've had Bruce here, our missionary in Kenya, and um, some others that are, uh, we had our, our partnership that we have with the seminary, with Brother Walt, in Nicaragua has been here. And you'll, the, 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 when you ask them about their need, the first thing they're going to tell you is uh, it's not going to be financial. It's never going to. I've never heard anybody, a missionary, even though they they have legitimate financial needs, most of them, but hardly ever will you hear them say anything about their financial needs. The first thing they'll tell you is, please pray for us. When you're on the front lines of ministry, that's what you need. But every one of us are on the front lines of ministry, and we need it as well. Well, I got news for you. Jesus prays for you. And that's what the altar of incense is all about. That's the intercessory prayer relationship that God has, Jesus has, with the Father on mine and your behalf. I want you to look at this, and we're going to pick up on it. But last week we called it, we used an outline that we're going to pick up on and continue to pursue, God willing, this morning. We looked at the proclamation of the altar, and we did a contrast and drew a contrast between the brazen altar and the golden altar. The brazen altar is symbolic of Calvary, the golden altar is symbolic of the relationship that Jesus has with the Father right now to intercede on our behalf. We looked at the, that it's a place of prayer, that the incense that were burnt on it, the smoke that rose up from the incense, is a, it's a symbol of the prayers of the saints that rise up to the throne of heaven and the aroma and how God values that because it's a sweet swelling aroma and the Bible says we talked about last week in Revelation 5.8 that those prayers are saved in bowls in heaven. That's how that's what, that's what God thinks of them. And we talked about it not only being a place of prayer but we talked about it being a place of privilege because it was priests only who could go there. As a matter of fact, anybody else that went there went there to their peril. And we looked at the example of King Uzziah where he tried to do that. Went in uh, and uh, contrary to God's plan and God's script and he was struck with leprosy and judged for doing it but we've been invited in and let's start there look at Hebrews chapter 4 look at Hebrews chapter 4 the privilege and grace of the intercessory relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit look at Hebrews chapter 4 and we're going to look at Verses 14 through 16. The scripture says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, that is, that he's the Son of God and he's Lord. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all ways, as we are, yet without sin. And look at the invitation, saint. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't get in. God doesn't look and say, okay, well, here's, here's, uh, here's my child, Lindsay. How did you get in here? It was by birth. We talked about the fact that our first birth gets us nothing but condemnation, but our second birth gives us access, full throttle access, into the throne room of heaven. Praise His glorious name. Hallelujah. We come invited. We're invited to come. We have an invitation to come. And then it's a place of power. The horns that stuck up from it are symbolic of power. But prayerless life is a powerless Christian life. You can mark it down. A prayerless Christian life is a powerless Christian life. And the horns spoke of power. And the horns also were high enough, we talked about last week, to keep the covering over the altar of incense high enough above the uh, ashes that were burnt continually to keep it from burning the covers when it was moved. Because we remember now when he said there's going to be a fire and there's going to be an incense burning perpetually on this altar. There's never going to be a time when you're going to let the embers go out. And that typifies, that's symbolic of the relationship that Jesus and the Father have right now on our behalf. The Bible says again in Hebrews 7.25, He's at the Father's right hand and He ever lives to make intercession for us. That's a continual process. It never ends. It's also a place of prescription we talked about. And how that not restrictions, but prescription. That no fire that originated Anywhere else except from the brazen altar could be used there. There's no, you, if you took any kind of fire, any kind of ember to light that fire, and it came from any other place, it would incur judgment. There are two guys that can give testimony to that. Aaron's sons went in and burned strange fire. That's recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And they both went in there and burned fire that didn't originate from that altar, and God struck them down dead. The reason he had to strike them down dead is that symbolic of the fact that access to God was purchased at the cross of Calvary and no other place. There's no other place. The brazen altar is symbolic of the cross. The way of the cross leads home. The blood of Christ shed at Calvary is the only way to God. It's not a good way to God. It's not an optimal way to God. It's not the most favorable way to God. It's the only way to God. And so we had to judge him for bringing any other fire. But here's what I want to look at this morning. And that was a summary of last week. But I want you to zone in on something this morning with me, if you will. Look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17. You want to get insight about the prayers that go on between Jesus and the Father, even right now on your and our behalf? You need to read John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is his prayer issued to the Father on behalf of his disciples, and not only his disciples, but everyone who would believe in him through their testimony, which includes who? Includes you and I. So, the prayer that he's offering up here is not just for the disciples, but it's for you and I. And you can get insight on how Jesus prays for you and I right now. Amen? Isn't that awesome? And look at this. Watch this. Look at John 17.4. Jesus, in praying to the Father, setting the stage for the prayer for all of us, says this, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work 
which you have called me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the foundation of the world. Listen to me carefully here and follow along with me. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have themes. They all show Jesus in a certain light. The, the theme of the Gospel of Matthew is that he's the Messiah. He's the King of the Jews. The theme of the Gospel of Mark is he's a suffering servant. And if you look at those Gospels and you see the interplay between them and what stories are in them and what stories are left out, it's amazing study, to be honest with you. But it shows him as being the suffering servant in Mark. And in Luke, it shows him as being the Son of Man. And he's the, he's the Savior not only of the Jew, but of the Gentile like you and I. But in John, the theme of John is that he's God. Alright? When he said, look at this, when he said, I have glorified you on earth, and I have finished the work that you've called me to do. What was the work that Jesus called was called to do on this earth? Ultimately. To die on the cross. Well, he hadn't yet died on the cross here. He's praying. This is, this is before he dies on the cross. But yet, he says, I have finished the work that you've called me to do. I've got a book somewhere in my shenanigans. And I can't find it somewhere. And I wish I could lay my hands on it. And I've had it for several years. And it's called Born Crucified. That Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on the cross. That was his mission. And he says here, Father, I've finished that work. Well, as far as time's concerned, it hadn't yet occurred. But listen, he's speaking in his divinity here. And as far as God's concerned, that happened before the foundation of the world. As a matter of fact, Nancy, when you brought that up this morning in Genesis, it's perfect interplay here. That, that in Genesis chapter 3, just as soon as they had sinned, God did not slay an animal and cover them with animal skins as a reaction to their sin. That God doesn't react to anything. God only acts. Amen? And so when he did that, that was already planned. That was already something that God had done before the foundation of the world. It was a manifestation of his plan, but he wasn't reacting to sin. He'd already decided before you and I were created that it was going to be through his son we were going to be purchased because he knew that we were going to succumb to our flesh, we were going to buy the lie, and we were going to curse the human race by our sin. We were going to rebel against him as if he's not. And he said, no, I look around and look for an intercessor. I sought for a man to stand in the gap and make up the hedge before me before the land, and I couldn't find one. So therefore, the Lord, his arm brought salvation. Amen. And so as far as God's concerned, He's God, speaking as God to God the Father. He said, I've already finished the work you've called me to do. And now as a result of that substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial, all-sufficient death, burial, and resurrection, I am appealing to you as the high priest over these people. Now I'm going to listen to you. I want you to listen. If you've got notes, you're to write this down. Listen to me. I'm going to say it carefully. I'm going to say it one time and then you can write it back. Jesus pleads for no blessings at the golden altar that he has not already purchased at the brazen altar. Did you hear that? Jesus pleads for no blessing at the golden altar that he has not already purchased at the brazen altar. Which means that when he asks for something on behalf of you and I to the Father and he petitions the Father according to the Father's will, it's a done deal. Hallelujah. Amen. He purchased it at Calvary. When he asked for something at the altar of gold, it was because it was purchased at the brazen altar on Calvary's hill. 
God says, I will hear nothing at the golden altar that does not originate at the brazen altar. That's why an unbeliever's prayers are not responded to by God. He doesn't hear them. There's no conversation going on there because it is only purchased right and access is only gained through the cross. That's why the fire has to come from the brazen altar. It must be that way. It's only through Him. And so when Jesus petitions the Father on our behalf, it's a done deal. The Bible says all the promises of God in Jesus are yes. Do you know how they do modern day surgery nowadays sometimes? There's a bunch of different ways. Laparoscopic, and all the other stuff that they do, and all the specialty things they can do, and all the non-intrusive things they can do to get out your gallbladder and do a bunch of other things. As a matter of fact, that happened to Emma just not too long ago. It was like, let's don't get into that, okay? Let me tell you how they do it in, 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 in the real slick operating rooms. You take a uh, camera and mount it somewhere while the surgery is being done. Just mount it. And the surgeon has a screen up above him, tilted his way. And he's down there doing his business and doing his work. But he's not looking at the body. He's not looking at the patient. He's looking at that screen. And that screen and that camera amplifies what's going on there. So he can see better from that perspective than he could any other. And I want you to know that's a picture of the Christian life. We need to get our eyes off of our circumstances. We need to get our eyes off of the things that are going around us and get our eyes on the God that's sovereign over them. And then we can really see what's going on. And that is done through prayer. As we seek Him, He amplifies things. And rather than looking down here, trying to take using together some veins or, or trying to bypass an artery, we can look right there and see everything magnified and see it in clarity when we enter into the inner of the Holy Holy. Amen. That's what He wants. That's what He's that's what He's called us to do. And then we can get our eyes off of our circumstances and we can correctly interpret what's going on around us because we've seen from it. Amen. You know, Abraham, we've been talking about this in our Roman study. Abraham was such a guy. Because if you look at Abraham's life, here he is 100 years old, and here is Sarah 90. The Bible says they were dead as far as their womb, as far as their capacity to have children was concerned. They were dead. Well beyond childbearing years, both of them. But yet Abraham continued to believe and continued to trust God. You know why? Because it's just surely, as we're talking about the looking at the screen that's up above the operating room, he had his eyes fixed on the Lord the God that's sovereign over Sarah's womb, the God that's sovereign over His promises, and the God who is able. That's exactly what the Lord does when we enter into prayer with Him, and we enter into the Scriptures. He takes our hands. This is kind of the analogy with me. He is like this, Ken. He just kind of takes His hand. And you know, here we are weighed down with all the circumstances. We're weighed down with schedules. We're weighed down with this. We're weighed down with misunderstanding. Things are not going according to plan. I don't even know what the plan is most days. Then we begin to look and, and that weighs us down. And the Lord, when you get into His presence, kind of takes a nail-scarred hand and kind of takes His chin and just kind of lifts it up and says, Son, look at me. Look at me. That's what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says. Lay aside every weight the sin that so easily entangles. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy laid up before Him endured the suffering and the shame of the cross. Run the race with endurance. If you do not look at Him, you will not endure. This is the place of prayer. And when God petitions, is petitioned by the Son, the answer is yes. Can you imagine 
what it must have been like for Peter. Everybody identifies with Peter. He's probably our favorite Bible character. Because you can see yourself in him. Every time you look at the narrative, can't you? Aren't you encouraged by him? I just love to hold forth his life. Because I'm thinking, I've had Peter moments throughout my entire Christian life. And what does Jesus tell him? On the eve of his death, he says, Peter, here's the deal. He didn't say this part, but this was the reality. You're too full of yourself. You, you already, you done gone to smelling yourself, buddy. And you, you started reading your own press clippings. And I'm going to have to downsize you. I can't use you like you are. He said, here's the deal. Satan has asked for permission to sift you like wheat. You remember that? You're going to deny me three times before this night's over. And Peter's like, there's no way. I want to join with you. I, hey, I'll be with you. From pillar to post, tooth and nail, I'll be with you. He said, no, you're going to deny it. Satan's asked for permission. God's sovereign over even Satan's activity in the life of a believer. The level of temptation and how long it lasts. He's sovereign over everything. He said, well, do you want to turn to him and say it? But I have prayed for you. That's what he said to me. I have prayed for you. Listen, believer. He's praying for you. You have an advocate with the Father. Whoever lives to make intercession for you. And you know what he said, Aaron? He said, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. Now, did Peter fail? Absolutely. Peter failed. He did. He did. This is the part I can identify him with. I can identify him with. You know, making assertions about my faith that I found out that I wasn't prepared to live out. And what happens? He did fail. Amber, he did. He died him three times. As a matter of fact, you go to John chapter 1 and 21 and you find the pages of the scriptures and go on to the narrative. In John chapter 21, the resurrected Jesus comes to him on the shore and the disciples are out there messing and gone with fish. As far as Peter's concerned, it's over with him. I'm going back to being a fisherman. I've messed up. I've gone too far. I've stretched his grace way yonder farther than anybody else has ever stretched. You ever felt that way? That you've stretched God's grace too far and you can even no longer ask for it or expect it? i got news for you. You'll never stretch him that far. You'll never stretch him that far. And he said, you know what? I've stretched him that far. It's gone too much. I've ran my mouth too much. I didn't meet up the expectations. Here's what I would have done. If somebody would have told me, if I'm Peter, they said, listen, Jesus is on the shore. I said, listen, do y'all have that tarp that we cover this boat with? Can somebody find that tarp as quick as you can find it and put it across this boat and let me get into the utter, the corner of the boat somewhere. Just give me a corner somewhere and let me hide in here. You guys go do whatever you want to do with him. You fellowship with him, but I'm out. I'm going back to fishing. You know what he did? It's miraculous, really. He, he rushed to the shore to meet the Savior. Do you know why he did that? He did that because Jesus prayed for him. That was an answer to his prayer. And rather than hiding out and being ashamed of his failure, can you imagine the last time you've seen the movies? We've seen it depicted before us in film. The last time that Jesus looked at him was when the last crowed. And when the crow had crowed in that last, that third denial, he cussed even knowing him. 
And he looked over there and their eyes met one another. And the compassionate son of the living God, with compassion and love, not condemnation, looked at him in just pure love and acceptance. And he had to, he, that was embedded in his spirit when they, their eyes connected like that. And so they connected there, and what, what does God do? He says, Peter, here's the deal. Do you agape me? Now, we've talked about this before. We use the word love. We've got one English word to translate the word love. The Greeks have three. Two of them are used in the New Testament. One of them is agape, which is when it refers to the love of God. The other one is philio, which is brotherly love. And he said this. He said, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter, Peter said, Lord, you know I feel you. Sounds like it might work. Because see, the Peter before the denials would have said, You better believe it. I agape you. You better believe it, Jesus. You know that. I'm with you, buddy. You go to the cross, I'm there with you. As a matter of fact, I'll do everything I can to protect you from it. And if they need to take me, they can take me. But they're not going to take you. I'm with you. But the post-denial, Peter said, Lord, you know, I feel you. And Jesus asked him again. He said, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter said, Lord, you know, I, I feel you. And then he asked him again. And Jesus said, Peter, do you feel you me? He said, yeah, I do feel it. You know why? He'd been downsized. It worked. He was a broken man with an accurate estimation of who he is. And that is, apart from Jesus Christ, nothing. That's the kind of intercessory prayer that goes on. It's not, it's not to fill our fancies. It's not to, it's not to uh, make us reach our dreams. It is to downsize us, to humble us before a holy God so that we're in humble dependence upon Him, that He's glorified by our life, and we realize above everything else that He can do for me, He is my exceedingly great reward. He is my portion forever. Don't, I, I, you know what? You know what? In Christian culture nowadays, we, Christian culture in our, in our Christian culture has become a series of how-dos, how-tos to see what you can get out of God. When really the gospel is not only what it wanting what he can do for you, the gospel is wanting him. He'll arrange circumstances so that I can really see how he's operating. Peter got to see into glory and said, Oh, this is what you're about. And what did that position him for? That positioned him for to preach the gospel on Pentecost and three thousand people get saved and the church get born because he was a broken, humble man. Hallelujah. Amen. That's the prayer life of Jesus for you and I. Downsizing, Father, and when you do, don't destroy him. Don't crush him. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to do away with him, but I am trying to kill him of every reason he's got to trust in himself. I am trying to do that. And so manage that flame. Make it as intense as it needs to be, but don't make it too intense. Order the circumstances. Line it up. Do exactly what you need to do. And when you do that, one day we're going to look around and we're going to look down. And in his life and in her life, I'm going to see a reflection of myself. And that's what we were after all along. That's what we were after all along. That's the only fire that gets recognized. 
It's the only fire that comes from that brazen altar to crush us and make us. One more point. We're going to close. Look at Exodus chapter 30. and Look at verse 37. Exodus chapter 30, verse 37. You know, we said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Look at Exodus. We're going to see an example of that right here. Look at Exodus 30. And we're going to look at verse 37. He's talking about the incense that are burned on the altar king. It says, For the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy to the Lord. You know what? The incense was not for self-indulgence. The incense was not be used personally to make us smell better. The incense for the use of that altar exclusively is his hold to the Lord. I want to show you the New Testament application of that. Look at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You know, so often if we're not careful, we can go before the Lord and we can petition Him based on the fact that we're asking for some kind of favor in this world to make it easier for us. You know, that 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 this is home. This is this is my place. This is where I'm hanging out. This is it. Thank God this isn't it. And we're just passing through. This isn't my home. It's not your home either if you're a believer. And you know what? We can get self-indulgent in our prayers. You know, because you know why? Because, let me tell you where self-indulgence in prayer comes from. It comes from looking at the operating table rather than looking at the camera. The, what's the feed from the camera that shows us specifically what's going on. We're not looking at Him. We begin to look at Him. We begin to focus on Him. He'll transform my intercession. He'll transform my intercession and be based upon this. It won't be based upon what exalts or advances me but it will be based on what exalts or advances Him. It will, the purpose for the intercession will be that no matter what else is going on in my life, and I don't care where the misunderstandings lie, and I don't care what you want to do to me, and what you want to do in my family, Lord, we're here for Your glory. And whatever, whatever the prayer need is, let's let, it, let's let the catalyst, let, let's let the launching pad from the intercession be this. I am consumed with You being glorified in my life. Whatever that means. Otherwise, it's self-indulgent. We're taking the perfume and we're trying to make us smell better when we're really, we should be the fragrance of Christ to make Him smell to a world that needs to smell of Him. So look what happens. The, the incense are not for you. Here it is, 4-1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And watch this. And when you do ask and do not receive, 
It's because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, wants to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? Brothers and sisters, prayer is the Christian's vital breath. It's the vital breath of the believer. It's a, it, is, it is as natural and should be as natural and as essential to the spiritual life of a believer as breathing is to our physical life. We inhale the Word of God and we exhale prayer. We inhale the Word of God and we exhale petition. We inhale the Word of God because, see, the prayers that are answered in heaven, we've talked about time and again, are the ones who originate there. We find out where he's working. And Lord, it's not to spend it on my own self. It's not for self-indulgence. You're going to take care of me. But God, I'm interested in you being glorified in my life. Whatever mountain is there that obstructs your glory, I want it removed. That's my motivation for asking. And I'm clinging to every word that comes out of your mouth. Night before last, I was, uh, it was the eve of my birthday. I'm sitting there thinking, I can't believe I'm this old. can't believe I made it this far, and I can't believe I'm this old. And I was awakened in the middle of the night. And I was, in a good way, harassed by a statement that kept going over and over and over and over and over in my mind. I told Jill that the next day. I said, you know what? The Lord just woke me up last night, and I couldn't hardly sleep. And uh, probably stayed up for a couple of hours. Because this statement kept going over and over and over and over in my mind. And I want to share it with you. To preface it with this. I'm asking God to put a prayer grace on this church like we've never had. Have we seen God do miraculous things? You better believe it. We have seen God do some miraculous things. Here's a miracle sitting right here. You can literally died. Septic. Is that how you say it? in uh, Kennestone Hospital, and God raised him back up. We see him time and again do things. We heard this morning about Aaron's nephew, and God let us in on that to pray and petition for a bunch of other people. And look how God's moving and working. We've seen God save people who don't normally get saved when they're 90 years old. Ken's dad died about a year ago, and we asked a year and a half ago, and we asked the Lord that he would get saved. He was approaching 90 years old, and just before he died, he got saved. We've seen it happen time and again. We've seen God move and work. And I want to see him do more. And I want our intercession to be guided by looking up first, looking in, and then looking out. But if we look up first, we can see his activity. We petition him according to the activity that's going on in heaven. We can expect an answer, and we can lock in on his promises to stand on them and expect the power to operate in our lives rather than his power, rather than our own. But I believe what's happening to us is we're, we're living the Christian life out of our own strength. We're doing some noble, wonderful things, but we're doing it out of our own strength. And one of the ways that you can know that you're operating out of your own strength, one of the markers, one of the ways to test it, a litmus test, so there's no confusion, is to take a strong look at your prayer life. If your prayer life is weak, if your prayer life is minimal, you're operating primarily out of your own strength. You are. I had somebody fax me an email, a fax one time, when I was working at the bank, and it said, 
Think about the things that are going on in your life right now that you're not fervently praying about. Dot, dot, dot. Those are the things you're trusting yourself in. That's a good word. So here's what you woke me up with. This is what the Lord put on my heart. Jesus overcame so that we might not be overcome. So Christian, why are you overwhelmed? Jesus overcame so that we might not be overcome. So Christian, why are you overwhelmed? You're overwhelmed because you're carrying and shouldering some things that you're not giving in. And it's overwhelmed you. It evokes fear. It evokes confusion and doubt. It causes anxiety. The pressures mount. And every bit of that is self-imposed. It's not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord. Jesus overcame so that we might not be overcome. So Christian, why are you overwhelmed?